All right, this is always tricky business when you're multitasking with all this stuff, but we'll do the best we can. Um, so we continue our study of Romans 6. Um, in Romans 6, Paul asks the question, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? And the answer that he gives is no way. And then the reason why we shouldn't keep on sinning so that grace may abound is because we've been baptized into the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, you should die to sin. You should fight against sin and you should lead a different kind of life. He calls it in Romans 6, 4, a new life, a new life. Now, before we do an in-depth study of Romans 6, I have to do some backup work. We have to back the bus up, and I have to teach you a little bit about what the New Testament teaches about baptism. Because if you don't know what the New Testament teaches about baptism, you don't understand what Paul means in Romans 6 when he says, well, don't you know that you've been baptized and been buried with Jesus Christ into his death? And therefore, just as Jesus was raised through the resurrection of the fa- by, the, uh, by the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You, in order to understand this, you've got to understand what the Bible teaches about baptism in the New Testament. So that's what I want to do with you today. All right? So we're going to take a quick glance at what Paul says about baptism in Titus chapter 3. And I have it there for you on the screen. I've got a portion of it. And it's interesting that it says that he, namely God, saved us. Notice the S verb. He saved us. How? By a washing. And keep in mind that verb right there, washing. Paul was told in Acts 22 by Ananias when he got baptized. Ananias said to Paul, what are you waiting for? Get up and wash away your sins. That's Acts 22, 16. Paul uses the same kind of language in Titus 3, that God saved us through a what? A washing. And then he says it's a washing of regeneration. Some translations, rebirth. Rebirth and regeneration, same language, same kind of connotation, and a renewal of or by or in the Holy Spirit. So notice the S verb, saved, is hooked with a regeneration and a renewal that came through a washing in which the Holy Spirit was at work. This is no doubt a reference to baptism. And Paul says in Titus 3 that this is a trustworthy saying. So again, I repeat for the sake of emphasis, the S verb in the New Testament is sometimes associated with baptism. I'll give you another example, Mark 16, 16. You believe in your baptized, you will be saved. Okay. Now, just to get ahead of the game here, because you're probably wondering, well, I thought Jesus saves. He does. The Bible teaches both. What's the distinction? Here's the distinction. That Jesus wins and achieves and accomplishes salvation at the cross. You weren't there. Neither was I. So what does he do? Through various ways, the gospel gets delivered or salvation gets delivered. And one of the ways is baptism. So there's the winning and there's the achievement and the accomplishment of salvation on the cross. And in that sense, the Bible says that Jesus saves. That's true. Now, because baptism is one of the ways that Jesus delivers that forgiveness that he won on the cross, that's why the New Testament will say that baptism now saves you, 1 Peter chapter 3. So we don't do these false distinctions that Jesus saves, baptism doesn't, and then ignore what the New Testament says about it. Because there are many Christians who do. They'll ignore the clear teaching of Scripture, like I just quoted, Acts 22, Acts 2, or, or uh, Acts 2, of course, I'll get to that later, Acts 22, Titus 3, Mark 16, etc. 
All right? So, all of this shouldn't surprise us that Paul would write this language that God saved us through a washing of rebirth and a renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, where in the world would Paul have gotten this language? He would have gotten it from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So, for example, when Jesus met Nicodemus at night, they were talking about how one gets saved. Now, the language was entering the kingdom of God. In other words, how does one enter the kingdom of God? In other words, how does one get saved? And what was our Lord's answer? He said, you have to be born again. Or literally in the Greek, born from above, which means a heavenly birth. Not a natural birth, but a heavenly birth. Born again or born from above, you will not be able to see the kingdom of God. And of course, remember, Nicodemus didn't get it. He said to Jesus, so what have I got to do? I'm an old man, I'm paraphrasing. I'm an old man, Nicodemus said to Jesus. Does this mean I have to jump back in my mother's womb and gestate for nine months? And probably, the text doesn't say it, but you know, if we were there, Jesus probably went like this. Oi, hey man, don't you know anything? You know? And he essentially did. You know, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. You can look it up. It's in John 3. He actually says this. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about? So, no, it's not jumping back into your mother's womb and gestating for nine months. But to be born again or born from above is to be born of water and the Spirit. Born again. Notice the language. Born again or born from above, water and Spirit. And then go back to Titus 3. He saved us through a washing of rebirth. That's the language of John 3. Rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit or of the Holy Spirit, that's John 3. You must be born again of water and of the Spirit. Otherwise, you will not see the kingdom of God. This all matches Matthew 28 as well, because Jesus mandates, of course, that all nations be baptized in the name. Notice it's not names, but it's name singular, which means one God. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when you are baptized into God's name, God gives himself to you. God gives his divine and saving name to you, and at the same time when he does that, he's giving himself to you. So if I can draw on the board, this is Christianity. This is the direction of Christianity. God does something for us. That's the directional. The arrow from God to us. That's Christianity. So that's this. Jesus comes from his Father's throne, takes on flesh, dies and rises for us. He does that for us. That's the direction. When he delivers this salvation that he won for us on the cross, one of the ways is baptism. And again, the direction is from him to us, giving us gifts. We have a giver God. He loves to give gifts. And one of the biggest gifts that he gives is his name. And when he gives you his name, he gives you himself. So when you're baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father gives himself to you. Now, you'll notice this is a whole different matrix of way of talking. Because in America, and me growing up in Wyoming, <laughs> there weren't many Lutherans in Wyoming, right? You're the Mormon, or you're Southern Baptist, or you're Assembly of God in, in Wyoming, generally speaking. And so when I grew up in Wyoming, I never dated a Lutheran girl. I didn't date a Lutheran girl until I went to college and then married her, you know? Where is she? There she is, right there. And, uh, but here's how, here's how they talk. Listen, this is how they talk, and no doubt you've heard this your entire life. To paraphrase, to be saved or to be born again, you have to give something to God. So the arrow, Christianity for these folks, is ultimately this direction. 
And I was told growing up that Brent, in order to be saved, you have to give your life and your heart to God. Otherwise, you're not saved. So who's in the driver's seat when it comes to salvation with that paradigm? It ain't Jesus. It's you. It's all up to you. That's why Billy Graham's radio program while he was still alive was called The Hour of Decision. Because you needed to do something to get saved. So this is a whole different matrix of talking. Now backing up to repeat the point I'm making from Matthew 28. To be baptized in the name of the Father means that God the Father gives you His name and with His name He gives Himself to you to promise to be God for you, to act as God for you. When you're baptized in the name of the Son, which would be Jesus Christ, Jesus not only gives you His name, but He gives Himself to you and everything that belongs to Him and that He won for you here on the cross. When you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives His name to you and therefore He gives Himself to you and everything that belongs to Him. You can read about, like, for example, in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, kindness, patience, etc. Remember that? And many other things. So there's a whole different matrix here. And that's why I'm taking the time today to go over this ABC biblical stuff about baptism so that you can begin to understand then why Paul says in Romans 6, we're not going to continue to sin so that grace may abound. Why not? Because you've been baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. You've been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that you may live a new life. So when you're born again or born from above through water and of the Spirit, you are a different creature. It's spelled F-A-I-T-H. You're a faither, you're a truster in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now you're going to live a different kind of life because you're a Christian now and you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So any questions about what I've covered here from Matthew 28? Yes, please. Yes, yes. So to, uh, generally speaking in America, to be a born-again Christian essentially means that, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, and we thank God for that. That's wonderful. But at the same time, they'll say, because I made a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, a, it's Jesus plus. Now... Right. So Christians who don't baptize children will dedicate children to the Lord. And they'll base that on, for example, Samuel's mother, Hannah, dedicated Samuel. Okay? Now that, that's what she did, but Jesus never mandates that. Do you understand that? Do you see the difference? Now, if you want to dedicate your child to the Lord, that's fine. But in the New Testament, how do you do that? You follow the Lord's mandate, Matthew 28. You make sure the kid gets baptized so that the divine and saving name gets given to that child. Now, let me back this up a little bit more. So when, for example, in the book of Acts, when one of the apostles of Acts asked, what must I do to be saved? Remember the, the centurion, the, the Roman soldier, I mean, asked, I think it was Peter, what must I do to be saved? What was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The very preaching of that, listen carefully, the very preaching, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that word then did what it said. It actually created the faith in this jailer, and he was converted through that very preaching of that word. He didn't make a decision. The word converted him. You see, this, is the, this again is another important biblical teaching. 
When God created the world, did God say to chaos, will you decide to become the world now for me? No. How did, the, how, did, how did the world and the universe come out of chaos? Let there be light. God spoke it. There was no decision by the chaos to decide to give its life to God. You understand I'm using a mixed analogy here. But God's word does and gives what it says. So when Jesus is at Lazarus' grave and he's been dead for four days and his corpse is rotting and stinking, does Jesus say, Lazarus, will you give your heart to me? Will you make a decision to come out of the tomb and follow me? No, because he's dead. And so how does Lazarus come alive? Lazarus, come out! The word does and gives what it says. So when a preacher says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that word is at work and the Holy Spirit is at work converting people through it. See, that's a, that's a whole different matrix again. But most Christians operate with a false presupposition. And the false presupposition is this, is that I have a will and my will can decide for my salvation. Now, when you read the Bible, you know that unbelievers are described in what terms? Like, for example, in the Ephesians, dead in our trespasses and sins, under God's wrath. For example, in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, dead to sin. The Bible speaks of sinners or unbelievers as dead. Therefore, they can do nothing on their own. Now, in fact, I would even argue this. People who are unbelievers, you know how their will works? Here's how their will works. Constant running away and rebelling against God. Not moving toward God, but running away. Like Adam and Eve, remember? When they sinned, they fell into sin, and they, they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Did Adam and Eve run to God? What'd they do? They ran as fast as they could away from Him to hide. God had to find them and ask them the question, where are you? What have you done? Okay, so I hope that's helpful to you. So when you run with false presuppositions, then you get things messed up in the Bible, especially then baptism. Okay, there was another hand. Yes, please. So you mentioned that free will, a lot of people, we hear that all the time, people believe in free will. Correct. So free will, do I have, do I have, even if I, even as an unbeliever, does an unbeliever have free will to do certain things? Yes, things below. That is to say, earthly things. In other words, should I wear these shoes today or not? Should I put this vest on even though my wife told me not to wear it today? <laughs> I have free will to do that. Okay? That's the things from below, earthly matters. But with regard to things above, heavenly matters, salvational things, you do not have free will. And as I said before, the will of the unbeliever is in constant rebellion against God and wants nothing to do with God. It's always moving away, not toward. That's why God in the Bible always comes to the sinner and preaches so that his word will convert the unbeliever. So, that's the distinction. So, a lot of these people, though, there's a lot of denominations who believe in free will. Correct. And they, 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 make, it, they make free will and they, leave, they don't leave it with regard to earthly things. They take free will and then apply it to salvational things. And that's why when I was growing up in Wyoming, when I, when I was dating this girl in high school, her family and she, Tony Betcher, said, Brent, you're not saved. And I said, yes, I am. No, you're not. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're not saved, Brent. Why not? Because you haven't done something. What do I need to do? You need to make Jesus the Lord and master of your life. 
And until I did something, I wasn't saved. That's not Christianity, brothers and sisters. Christianity is that God gives His life and His heart to us. And then that's why Jesus in Matthew 28 makes sure that this stuff gets done so that people will be converted by God Himself. That's why in Luke 24, he says, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's why in Mark 16, Jesus says, preach the gospel to all creation. That's why in John 20, Jesus says, you better go out and forgive people their sins. Okay. Is that helpful? So, so we say, we do nothing for our salvation because it's a free gift to Christ. Correct. And they say... They'll say the same thing. Right, They'll say the same Christ words. Right, and here's the, here's the deal. They'll say the same thing that you just said, Rob, and they'll quote Ephesians 2 verbatim, that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus. And that's true. And then take it all away. Because they have a presupposition that they run with that I have to have free will when it comes to salvation. So on the one hand, the biblical teaching, and then take it all away by saying, now you need to do something. Then they can't connect these dots, you see. Let me give you another example from Scripture. You can do this again. Do a concordance study. It's in Isaiah and Jeremiah. I'm doing this off the top of my head, so you'll have to double-check me. But can you imagine a preacher named Isaiah or Jeremiah talking to people who are deaf, and he says this, <laughs> Hear, O deaf! Now, if you're there hearing that among a bunch of deaf people, and the preacher says, Hear, deaf! You're saying, he's an idiot. What a dumb preacher that is. And they also preach this way to a bunch of blind people. Now, of course, this, is, this isn't physically deaf people. These aren't physically blind people. These are spiritually deaf and spiritually blind people. These are the Israelites. So, hear, O deaf, and then get a load of this. <laughs> See, O blind. Those people who are spiritually deaf and spiritually blind do not have the resources within themselves to see or hear, but it's the word that is preached. Hear, O deaf, then now they can hear. The Holy Spirit is at work in that word preached. And this is why in the New Testament you have these miracle stories when Jesus comes up to a blind man, right? Blind and deaf man. And even a mute, I believe. Maybe I misspoke. Blind and, and mute, I believe it is, right? I think it's that. And Jesus heals him. And that's, that's physical healing, but it's also giving a, a lesson on spiritual healing so that now you can see by faith and hear and speak. All right, now that's a long answer to this, but it's, it's worth spending the time on this. There's more. Okay, here we go. Well, I like to drop my train around here. So, they say they have to do something to be saved, right? Yep. So, the world say that they because of what Christ did for us. So, but as Christians, then our response to what Christ did for us is to love others and to want to be saved. And they say that you have to be saved. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. Now, pushing this to the hilt, these, these Christians, you know, so for example, the, the family that I mentioned when I grew up with, the Betcher family in Wyoming, I can guarantee you that when push comes to shove, and when, I don't know if her dad's still alive, I don't know if her mom's still alive, but let's just pretend they're still alive. When they are on their deathbed, when push comes to shove, they're going to trust only in Jesus Christ. I can guarantee you that. Because on that point in their life, they're going to realize that what I did and what I did in my life ain't going to cut it. And they're going to only trust in Jesus. I'll give you another example. So Thomas Aquinas, the medieval Roman Catholic theologian who was so influential and still to this day is one of the great influences of the Roman Catholic Church. 
And that's why a lot of people don't like Pope Francis, because if you follow Thomas Aquinas, Pope Francis ain't following St. Thomas Aquinas. But the point is with St. Thomas Aquinas, and um, he, he pushed salvation not by, not by faith in Jesus Christ, but in his writings, he purposely said that salvation is faith plus what you do. L-O-V-E, okay? like you just mentioned. Faith isn't enough for salvation. You have to love. Okay? Now, when he was on his deathbed, what happened? He was asked, Dr. Aquinas, will you be saved? And he said, yes. How do you know this? Because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. <laughs> That's the glory of it all. Okay. And so will these people. They, they just don't seem to connect the dots. Okay. So we need to help them. And many Lutherans talk this way, by the way. And we need to help them. Yeah, salvation is pure gift. Right. Pure gift. And we have, we have nothing to do with it. Doing things for others. We do it not because it's going to make us saved. Because we are and we want to out of love for others. Yeah, so faith saves because faith looks outside of itself to Christ who suffered, died, and rose again. Now faith is never alone. But when it comes to salvation, it is. But it's never alone when it comes to what? Love. And that's the stuff here on this earth. So faith saves because it trusts in Jesus. That's the salvational stuff. And so faith then in Jesus is busy at work, loving and serving others, right? Not to be saved, but because we are. That's all. So we follow. So this is where Christ is both gift and example, as I taught you a few weeks ago. When it comes to salvation, Jesus is pure gift. He alone is the Savior. And he's also example to follow in how you love other people. So when you look at the cross, this is both gift and example. Gift for your salvation, and if you want to know what it means to live a Christian life, you live your life sacrificially for the sake of other people. Romans 12 says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then Paul delineates that, living for the sake of other people. Is that helpful? So keep, have, we keep both. And when you read the epistle of James, James is big on this. I'll just, I'll just uh, throw it out this way. This isn't exactly what he says, but run with it. He, James says, you Missouri Synod Lutherans, you say you believe in Jesus Christ, but you don't do what he says. You say you have faith, but then you don't do what he says. You don't go to church. You don't take the Lord's Supper. You know, and you, you, you brag about how you're saved because you believe, but you don't do what he says. And James cuts, the, cuts you, Missouri Senate Lutherans, he says, then you're not saved. Because if you ain't doing what Jesus says, you ain't got this. This is false faith. Read James, you'll find it out. Okay? I encounter this all the time as pastor. These Missouri Synod Lutherans, I'm saved. Why are you saved? Because I believe in Jesus. Then why don't you obey the Sabbath day? Why don't you remember the Sabbath day? How come you don't eat and drink his body and blood? How come you don't t take care of people? Like this congregation. Do you realize, folks, read the book of Hebrews. Read the book of Hebrews. And the context of Hebrews is you have Christians in the early church who are being persecuted for being Christian, and therefore they're, they're willing to give up faith in Christ and they're willing to quit going to church because if they go to church, they're going to be guilty by association and they're going to be persecuted. And Hebrews constantly says, don't forget the meeting together. Don't forget going to church. And, and hooked on that, hooked on that is, and show love for one another. 
Here's my point from Hebrews, and you can read it on your own. These Missouri Synod Lutherans who say they believe in Jesus Christ but won't come to church are the most unloving people you'll ever meet, according to Hebrews. Why? Because they don't care about you one bit who come to church regularly. They show so almost so unloving to you. Do you realize? Here's the point. When you come to church, you are showing faith in Christ, but you're also showing what? Love to your fellow believers. In lo- now, let me illustrate this to you. The old timers, you old timers, like me, I can guarantee you, because I've heard it a million times, you old timers, when somebody comes back to church who hasn't been in church for a long time, it uplifts you. It builds you up, doesn't it? Oh, so-and-so was in church today. Isn't that magnificent? That's the love. By coming to church, you show love and concern for your brothers and sisters. Now, this is what the Missouri Senate people have got to get under under their skin. That you call yourself a believer, and yet you won't come to church? You are the most unloving person ever. And we're, we're very serious about this. Lutherans are very concerned about not just faith in Jesus, but love. And that point isn't taught very much, and that's why I'm really passionate about it right now. Because I'm old and crotchety. <laughs> Seriously, I've, I've had it up, pardon me for the, I've had it up to here with these kind of people. <laughs> You've seen this, haven't you? Okay, I've had it up to here with it. I'm tired of talking to Missouri Senate Lutherans who say they believe in Jesus, but are the most unloving people. They don't love us. They won't come to church and uplift us and edify us. They show unlove to us. We don't care to them at all. All right, enough on that. Good grief. All right, so back to Matthew 28. When God gives you his name, he gives you himself and everything that belongs to him. All right? So again, this is ABC stuff. All right, let me go to another passage, if you will. This is Acts 2. Peter, his Pentecost sermon, he said, be baptized every one of you. Now the every one of you matches what? Make disciples of all nations. Peter was there on the mountain in Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations. So when the people ask him in Jerusalem, what what must we do? He says, you need to be baptized every one of you. And keep in mind this language that we hear in English. Be baptized. The English gives you the impression that this is something that you must do. That is to say, those of you who've studied English, seriously, you kids who have English classes, pay attention to this. This is really important that you learn these distinctions. Okay? I hated English. Now I love it. So we hear the English, be baptized, and we think it's active voice. Active voice. Namely, I need to be doing something. In the Greek, it's not active voice, it's passive voice. Here's the distinction. Active means you need to do something. Passive voice, which is this in the Greek, be baptized, means let it be given to you. Do you see the distinction? Side note, here's my, here's my advertisement again. You must, you must cut off at the knees. The thinking in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate that we should not send men to the seminary to learn Greek and Hebrew, et cetera, et cetera, because it's too expensive and takes too much time. If we need, we need pastors, so we're going to forego seminary training, and we'll just get a guy like Denny Barnes, we'll give him a couple classes for a couple of weeks, and then we'll ordain him. You must cut that off at the knees. Because I can guarantee if you do that route with Denny Barnes, guess what you don't learn? That's right. If you don't know the Greek... And I'm not saying you have to learn it, but your pastors better know it. 
because of what I've just taught you right here. This is a classic example. Everybody reads this English passage and thinks it's active voice. Now, I need to go do something for the Lord, and we're back at this direction again. I've got to do this. It's up to me. But instead, it's passive voice, and Peter's simply saying, Bryce, let this be given to you. And how does faith talk? Okay, thank you. So be baptized, every one of you, and notice, it's in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We started out with Titus 3 today. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, or rebirth, and renewal. By whom? The Holy Spirit. That was Paul. This is Peter. Now, why can both hook the Holy Spirit with water baptism? Huh? I want an answer. I'm not going to answer this one right now. Why can Paul in Titus 3 and why in Peter both agree that in water baptism, you're given the Holy Spirit? Or the Holy Spirit is at work? Think Matthew 28. Because you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit gives you his name, he gives you himself and all his gifts. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down from the New Testament here? So everything that the New Testament teaches about baptism flows from what particular Bible passage? Matthew 28, 19, the mandate and institution of our Lord. Now, side note, and my kids in fifth and sixth grade, and even though they've had catechesis with me, you know, like Taylor and Nolan and whoever else, uh, Dylan, is she here this morning? Where is she? She's teaching. Well, you know what I'm talking about. I can guarantee you there's another one down there with, uh, with Taylor. There's Jill. Jill's down there, okay? So you can all say, so if you go and you, you're at a so-called baptism and the pastor uses water, but baptizes in the name of God, the mother, the daughter, and uh, the force, is the person baptized? The answer is no, because they're not baptized in what? What is it, Jill, do you remember? They're not baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'm not making this up, folks. This is happening. In the major Protestant denominations in the United States, baptizing in the triune name is, being, is not being done. Okay, yes, please. Yeah, with Philip, right. I don't know exactly what the verbs are in that passage at the moment. I'd have to look that up. But, it, but the point is, is that when you're a believer, you never live without what? Being baptized. He's given the word. Correct. He's reading Isaiah. Yeah, he's reading Isaiah 53. Yeah, so we don't give. He's receiving the gifts. He receives the preaching from Isaiah 53 that that suffering servant is Jesus. Obviously, he's converted, and, and the, the text doesn't give us the entire conversation. So, no doubt, when the Ethiopian eunuch says, So, what prevents me from being baptized? Obviously, Philip was talking about this as well. Matthew 28. No doubt about it. And thus, baptism. So notice, the two, go, the two go together in Acts with the Ethiopian eunuch. The, the baptizing and the teaching, or you can flip it. You can always flip it. So for example, with adults who, who are converted as adults, 
will teach and then maybe baptize later. With children, young children, will baptize and teach later. But we make sure that both get done. And that's, that's what happened with Philip and the Ethiopian, teaching first and then baptism following Matthew 28. Anything else? Yes, please, Kimberly. And the humanist would be this. Let's, let's brush our teeth on humanness. It'd be our old sinful nature, right? That's what you mean, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let, me, let, me, let me push this. I have it in my paper today, and I have it on my, my, my slides, but I'll just skip ahead. So many Christians in the, in the world will say that baptism cannot and does not give you anything. Now, we, we, if you've been paying attention to the Bible this morning, you know that's simply not true. Matthew 28, 19, what are you given? God's name. And his name's not a nothing. It's divine and saving. God save, read, read the Bible, how God saves his people by giving them his name. All throughout the Bible. Okay? Just do a concordance study. Because when he gives his name, he gives himself. Okay? So, why would people say then that baptism doesn't give anything? All right, here's the answer. And it's the old sinful nature at work. And Paul warns against this in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, you got your Bibles? Take a look at it. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Verse 8, Colossians 2 verse 8. Now what I'm doing with you here is to show you a warning from the blessed apostle and then show you how the church did not heed to that. And many Christians this day do not, do not hear this word of God from the apostle. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Now keep in mind, before we read this verse, let's do a little history lesson. Okay? Alexander the Great died around, what, 333, 332, 33, look it up. It's 333 something. It's, I'm in the ballpark. Alexander the Great died in, the, in that date, around that date. And he had conquered the, almost the entire Mediterranean world, right? He even went to India, as far as India. Now, Alexander the Great, whatever country he conquered, whatever region he conquered, you all, you've all learned this term from history. He Hellenized it. What does that mean, Hellenized it? He Greeked it. He Greeked it, because Alexander the Great was from Macedonia, from Greece. Now, Greek means this, or Hellenized, every aspect of your life has to be Greek, even your religion, okay? Not only the way you speak, the food you cook, everything, everything has to be Greek, including what you believe spiritually. Well, now I'm going to throw some other names. Greek philosophers were huge as a result of this, and they had a huge influence on the ancient world. Plato and uh, Aristotle. 
You've all heard these two guys, Plato and Aristotle, Greek philosophers. And they got pushed with the world being Hellenized, starting with Alexander the Great. Now, this continues all the way up into Jesus' day. For example, you had Jews who were scattered all over the Mediterranean world. Do you know that? You had Jews who were living in Egypt, okay? All the way in Egypt and other parts of the Mediterranean world. Because of Alexander the Great and his conquering the world and Greeking it, you have Jews that translated the Hebrew Old Testament into what language? What do you think? Greek. <laughs> it's called the Septuagint. That's the Greek Old Testament. Now, what I'm doing is showing how much of an influence this had on the world. So at the time of our Lord's Day, when Matthew writes his gospel, and you look at his gospel in detail, in the Greek, <laughs> in the Greek, you will discover that when Matthew quotes the Old Testament, he's quoting from the Greek Old Testament. Now, I don't say that to put, it, to put that into question, that it wasn't accurate. Of course, it's accurate. It's an accurate translation of the Hebrew. But I'm just showing this. This is how much everything got Greeked. Now, you got Colossians 2? Let's read verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. All right? I'm going to give you some philosophy from Plato. These are my own words now, and this is how many Christians talk, and they got it from Plato. Greek philosophy. And here's the, here's the presupposition. That finite things... That is to say, creaturely, earthly, physical things that are finite cannot contain or receive anything that is infinite, divine, spiritual. So to repeat, learning from Platonic Greek philosophy, Christians in the early church and even in the, in the Reformation times and still to this day, no joke, will teach that finite things like what? Dun, dun, dun. Water. There's no way that the Holy Spirit can use a finite thing like this and bestow an infinite divine gift. Now that's a fundamental presupposition that is in most people's heads in this country. And if you want to test me out on it, test, test me out on it. I can give you an anecdotal experience. When I was, again, growing up, my dad had his own business, plumber and a heater. He had a guy that worked for him, and his name was Bob. My dad's name's Bob, too, but Bob was the guy that was working. And Bob and I would have these conversations, these theological conversations. And he would always, he wasn't a Lutheran, he was always ragging on me about our teaching on baptism and Lord's Supper and all this kind of stuff. I said, so Bob, I said, I don't understand where you're getting all this stuff because the Bible teaches that baptism actually gives you. And I gave these passages, okay? okay? And here's what Bob did. So to deny these clear passages of Scripture that we've begun to study today, he, guess what he said? He said, the finite cannot contain the infinite. No joke. That's not in the Bible. Push this to the hilt. Seriously, push this to the hilt, and what do you have to deny? Not just baptism, not just Lord's Supper, but what else? Okay, but yeah, not be saved. Okay, resurrection, what else? Keep going backwards with our Lord's life. His incarnation. So John 1.14 has to be thrown out. 
that the eternally begotten word of the Father, Jesus Christ. Remember John 1, 1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the infinite. The infinite Son of God. And then John 1, 14, the word became finite flesh and dwelt among us. And brothers and sisters, this is precisely is what is happening now in Christianity in general. When you run with this platonic philosophical presupposition, this will ultimately lead you to deny the incarnation of our Lord, that it cannot convey anything divine or any eternal gifts, therefore his crucifixion can't, because that's pretty finite. Death. There can't be no bodily resurrection, because body's finite. That's a creaturely thing. And that's exactly what's happened. Trust me on this. The Protestant seminaries in the United States, I'm speaking in general to make my point, the Protestant seminaries and the, the teachers, they will teach the conclusion that Jesus really isn't God because the finite cannot contain the infinite. He was just a man. And therefore, they deny everything with regard to Christianity. And it all flows from this. And this is why Paul, Paul had, his, he had a handle on this, and that's why he says in Colossians, watch out for philosophy. It'll kill Christianity. Yes, please. Yes, it is. That is Gnosticism. That, okay, so what, what Mike has just identified is what Paul has to, to, to combat, and so did John in his gospel, Gnostics, which taught this very thing. That Jesus couldn't possibly be a man and God. Correct. So they would say he only, appear, he only appeared as a man, but he's not truly God. Uh, so, the, just to throw this out for fun. So, when you read John's Gospel, when you read John 6, oh man, if you know John 6, Jesus says some pretty scandalous things, doesn't he? And th this is called the church reduction sermon, I like to call in John 6. He's got lots of people following him up until John 6, when Jesus says what? Unless you eat the what? The flesh. And drink his blood. You have no life in you. Now John records these words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus says these words on purpose because Jesus knew what was going to happen in the church. Gnostics. Because this wasn't anything new. This is way before Jesus came along, this Gnostic teaching with Plato. And so when Jesus speaks in John 6 about eating his flesh, it is a Greek word that literally means chew with your teeth. This ain't some spiritual, non-eating, non-chewing stuff. This is actually grinding with the teeth, is the Greek verb here. And John and Jesus use those words, to, and it's against the Gnostics that are infiltrating the church, that these finite things, the body of Christ can't save you. The blood of Christ can't save you, because that's finite. Therefore, these words are used. Right, Jesus says the Spirit blows where He wills, which means the Spirit converts when and where He pleases in those who hear the gospel. I'm going to repeat this. Uh, Mike has quoted John 3 again, the Nicodemus account with Jesus, and after Jesus says you've got to be born of water and the Spirit, and then Jesus says that the Spirit blows where it wills. This Jesus means this. When it comes to conversion, the Spirit converts when and where He pleases in those who hear the 
gospel. So, so for example, I preach the gospel every Sunday, okay? But there may be somebody there that isn't a believer, but, but maybe down the road they will, but it's a result of the Holy Spirit converting to the preaching of the gospel. But that's on his timetable, not mine. Correct. Because Nicodemus is all about doing works. Um, I think, do you remember, do you remember when we did our Old Testament story study? If you kept those sheets, wink, wink. (laughs) When we studied Genesis 15 and God's promise to Abraham, and I hooked it with John 3 and Nicodemus and just what you said. Anything else? Let's look at my time here. Let's see what we've got. Yes. Yes. But it's notice it's fruit. And right. remember what Jesus says, the good tree, uh, pardon me, a good tree, what's a good tree? A faither. And so a good tree bears good what? Yeah, it just naturally happens. So the believers naturally do this. And of course, God through His Word, the Holy Spirit through His Word, then if you're, if you're wondering, Mike, well, how do I do this? You've got the Word that'll help you and urge you to do it. So you're right, that's true. Yeah. Through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, teaches you what these are God-pleasing works that He wants you to do. And they're fruit. Notice in Galatians, it's not plural fruits, it's singular fruit. That's another side note. Oh, the worker for my dad? No, no, I mean, he totally disagreed with me. And see, this is the thing, because he was running with a presupposition in his head before he would read the Bible. And his presupposition was this, because he'd been taught it all his life from his preachers. Because I asked him, where'd you learn this? From the preachers I've, I've heard all my life. Okay? So this is the problem, and we all must repent of this, because we all have this problem. Okay? We have certain things that we like to do in our life. The old, the old sinful nature likes to do things, right? And the old, the old sinful nature, when we start reading Scripture, our old Adam and our old Eve will say, ah, that can't be what the text means, because I like to do this sin. So I'm, I'm going to ignore that, and I'm going to keep doing. I'm as guilty as that as anybody. <laughs> the kids are coming in. It's about that time. Holy smokes. So I want to finish this uh, next time. And eventually we're going to look at Romans 6 in detail. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, 